July 10th, 2006, I started my ministry here at Crossing as your pastor. It was something totally unexpected, something I never dreamed of, something I wasn't prepared for, and yet God did it. Since that time, I preached my first official sermon because I preached here before, you know. I preached my first official sermon July 16th of that month of 2016. So almost uh, 10 years later, I preached about 400-ish sermons in this room. This summer, I've asked the Elder Council, and they have graciously allowed me to take a sabbatical from preaching. Not from all my pastoral duties and not from all my duties, but from just the preaching part. So I'll be here on Sunday mornings most of the time. I'll still be over there being a slave driver to all those people around me over there. They'll keep me in order. And I'll still be here doing ministry other than the preaching part. And so what's going to happen in between, between me and the next time I come back, which will be a series in Genesis that starts up in the fall, is the elders have decided that they want to, to take our church through Romans. And so they're going to be, uh, there's a group of us men who have already, some of you have already been contacted. Don't worry, others of you will be contacted still. And we're going to go through the book of Romans. Our guys are going to lead us through that, and that's what we're going to do for this summer. I really appreciate the elders doing that for me and giving me that time away from the preaching for a little bit. And I look forward to stepping back up here in September and just having a great time in Genesis. Be praying for these guys as they prepare because they're going to do, be preparing for Romans. You know, it's a tough nut. It's a big book, a lot of important stuff in it. After they do their 40 to 60 hours a week and then prepare for Romans. So be praying for them, all right? So open up your Bibles. Isaiah 40. This chapter is beautiful. This chapter is lovely. This chapter is tender and compassionate. It is wooing. When you were a kid and like you had an upset stomach, or if this happened to you this week even, what's the words you want to hear from mom or a loved one? What's those words you want to hear? Talk to me. (laughs) It's okay. You don't need to go to school today. Okay, that's good. Good, Josiah. Right. Anyone else? But it is. It's kind of like you want to hear it's okay. Like you'll stop throwing up soon. You know, whatever the case may be. You want to be comforted, don't you? You want to hear words that make you think that this is going to pass. So here we are in Isaiah 40. And Israel has lost everything that they ever were at home. Temple's gone. Everything's gone. They've been in exile now for a long time in a foreign land that is hostile to them. And in steps the prophet Isaiah with this message. Comfort, oh comfort my people. I have to tell you that this is the passage I've been in now for about two weeks. And just those words, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. That passage says, it's the way it's said there. In Hebrew, it more kind of says, comfort, oh, comfort, keep saying it, says God. Just keep saying it. I would imagine that in a room this size, that there are probably several of us who want to hear those words. There are probably several of us who want to hear those words maybe last week. And unbeknownst to us right now, there are several of us who are going to need to hear it next week. Comfort, 
O comfort my people. In this passage, Isaiah 40, it's a great passage. It ends with one of the most famous verses. You see it all the time in print with eagle and all. Verse 31, yet those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up like with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow tired. They will walk and not become weary. And in between that, we learn a lot about God and a lot about man. And so can keep in your mind, here is a message from God to his people through the prophet Isaiah, and he's trying to comfort them. So let's pay attention to how God chooses to do that. In this book, we're going to learn seven things about God. There we go. We're going to learn seven things about God. And you know, the very first thing we're going to, and because I'm going to, re, I mean, this is going to be a speed sermon a little bit. Um, I'm just going to reference some of this. We're going to learn immediately in chapter 1 that compassion, you know, that comforting nature of his. In verse 2, we're going, to lead, we're going to learn that he's forgiven because he says in verse 2, he says, tell my people that all their iniquities are taken care of. In verse 8, we learn that he is faithful. In verse 11, he talks about being a shepherd who gently and tenderly takes his lambs and cares for them. In, 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 chapter, in verses 12 through 26, we read about the supreme, sovereign, all-controlling, never missing anything. I cannot even think of all the words you should use to describe the God that is described in verses 12 through 26. Verse 27, he says, I already know about everything that's going on. I know about that. And then in verses 29 and 31, we learn about how sustaining he is. All those things are his character we learn. But now then there's another part of this equation. There's other things we learn from this passage. And the next thing we learn is what people are like. Verse 6 and 7 right here says that people are unfaithful. Verses 19 to 20 speak about people as being idolaters. Verses 29 through 30 speak about people as being weak and tiring and failing. Basically, everything people are not, God is. In every area of our weaknesses, our shortcomings, God is the opposite of that. He fills in the gaps. He puts his finger into every hole in our life. And basically, he gives all that we need and we need everything. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, God keeps saying. For me, when I, when I can fit it in and when I can do it, especially this time of year, it's like I've been on my back porch, and it's been, don't, don't, don't get the impression, it hasn't been early in the morning, but it has been in the morning. In the back porch and reading these words to me have been like, you know, ice cold water on a blistering day. A cool breeze on a day that is just sweltering. Those words are just refreshing. They're relaxing. They're, they're like melting into your favorite easy chair. And that easy chair is the hand and the heart of God. And he just takes you and you just melt into him. But watch what the text does. 
In this text, as we've already pointed out, it begins to point out and spell out all these aspects and all the nature and the character of God. Forgiveness in verse 2, as we already pointed out. He promises future glory in verses 3 through 5. In verses 6 through 8, I really, this is another passage that you always hear. But in studying it this week, I realized there's something in there that only one translation of the Bible that we currently use, I believe, approaches correctly. Let's start in verse 6. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? And he says, all flesh is grass. And all its, what word do you have in your Bible? Lovingness. Glory, good. Only the NIV says faithfulness. Or at least the version I was looking at. The word is chesed. And if you've ever, you've probably been in other studies where you've heard about the chesed love of God. It is a covenantal love that can never be broken. It's a love that cannot be, I mean, there's just no way around it. God's love to you and I is called chesed love. It is it's his covenant to us that there is, irre, it's just irreplaceable, irre, I just can't stop it. He will always love us because he has a faithful love, a chesed love. That word there is chesed, not beauty, although it can be translated that way. But when you think about the comparison, God is faithful, God is everlasting, and then it comes in here and it says, and man is like the grass, and his faithfulness is like the flower of the field. Makes perfect sense to me. None of us are glorious. Some of us think we are, but none of us are. But we, when we talk about our faithfulness, our faithfulness is always fading. It is, you know, the, the bloom of a flower. It's here for a while, and it's gone. But God, verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades. And he just said that flesh withers, faithfulness fades, but the word of the Lord Stands forever. Here he is speaking to a group of people who have been unfaithful. And their unfaithfulness has extended so far that he brought on the unimaginable punishment for that unfaithfulness. He took everything about their identity that was tied up into Jerusalem, into the temple, and he tore it down. He didn't leave them there to live amongst it. He even pulled them out of there and put them in a foreign land. So here's a group of people, he says, comfort, comfort. Your iniquities are covered. You are faithless. I will remain faithful. Have you needed to hear that? Have you been in a place where you find yourself one morning and you're like going, I should read my Bible today. Oh, I haven't done it for a month or for a year. And in that heart of hearts, it's like going, I am so unfaithful. And his message to you and I, because I am that person as well, his message to you and I is comfort. I'll cover those iniquities. I know how fleeting you are. 
I know how unfaithful you are, but I am always faithful. I'm always faithful. We learn about his tenderness. I think it's really interesting that the very next thing he says, uh, not the next thing, but in the next passage, there's this thing that he says. He says, I stand forever. And then he says in verse 11, and like a shepherd, he will tend his flock and his arms will gather the lambs and he will carry them in his bosom and he would gently lead the nursing ewes. Again, just help yourself. Think about it. Imagine with me. Here is a God who has taken those who have been unfaithful. Here is a God who has taken those that he's just put through unimaginable punishment for their unfaithfulness. And he says, this is who I am. I know how you are. I am faithful. Not only that, I know how you are, and I will gently gather you, and I will carry you. Now then, pay close attention and remember, he just said, I will carry you. What did he say in verse 31 we just read? We'll look at it again in a moment. Just... Make a note to yourself, mental note. Verse 11, he says, I will carry. Verses 12 and 14, he comes into this and he says, Who has measured out the waters and the hollow of his hand? Now, this next passage is glorious. I love it. There's another passage in Job that is like it as well, where God just begins to talk about himself. And no one else can say this. No one else can talk about themselves like this. No one else can talk about their God like this. And so he starts out like this in verse 12. He goes, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens by the span? Another one, look in verse 14. And whom did he, speaking of God, and whom did God consult? And who gave him a little bit of help in doing this? There's no answer. What's really interesting, twice in this passage, verse 18 and 25, twice in this passage, he asked this question. Uh, he asked this question. To whom do you liken to me? Verse 18 and 25. Whom do you liken to me? Or what likeness will you compare with me? Verse 25, he says, To whom will you liken me? that I should be his equal. So who is like me? Who are you going to compare me to? And then he says, again, in two passages, he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? He's emphasizing this. He's making a point here. He's trying to make sure, like, first of all, this is who I am. I am faithful. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Matter of fact, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to treat you gently and tenderly. I've forgiven all of your iniquities. They're behind us. We're moving on now. Matter of fact, that's what this passage is setting the stage for. The rest of the book, the major part of the rest of the book, talks about the future of Israel and its glory and its salvation. And so here he is. He says, who who else is like this? Who else would do this? Who are you going to compare me to? Who else are you going to put me in the lineup at the, at the prison cell? You know, like, put them all up there. Which one do you think is, might be the guy? He's going to, there's no one else you can put up there. It's just me. I've got it all going. And you want to know something? You can say, that's really arrogant. I just got to say, like, it's all true. It's only arrogant when it's not true, maybe. It's all true. He does have it all going. 
And there is no one else like him. And matter of fact, would you want your God to be a God who couldn't say this? Would you want a God to say, uh, you know what, I like most things about you, but there's a couple of things I don't like, so I'm going to push you off to the side. Would you want a God who says, you know what, I'm really tired of you. I'm done with you. I'm setting you aside. I'm not coming back for you. We're gone. I'm going to go over to the next guy. I like him better. Do you want a God who would say, like, you know what, move, move along, move along. Matter of fact, there's a great illustration. Not that I know many shepherds, but I've heard this and I've read this. That um, Middle Eastern shepherds lead their sheep. And their livelihood in being led and their death rate is low. We in the West herd our livestock. Push them, shove them, corral them, send the dogs off the edges, move them in, move them in. And again, they're the attrition rate is much higher than livestock that is led. And here you have a a shepherd who says, I'll lead you, I'll carry you, I'll go with you. So he says, who else is going to be like that? And he compares himself. If you look in verse 19 and 20, he says, as for the idol, a craftsman, creates it. A goldsmith puts gold over it. A silversmith fashions chains to make it look nice. And for the person who is too impoverished, who is too poor for an offering, they select a tree that hadn't rotted yet. And they cut it down and they carve it up and they try to make sure it won't fall over. That's what you have been comparing me to. There's no one else like me, he says. Verse 26, finally, he says, look up there. Lift up your eyes to the stars and see who has created those stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, who calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and his strength and of his power. Not a one of them is missing. That one is caring for you right now. That one is caring for you. In verse 27, he says, So why do you say, O Israel, and why do you assert that God doesn't know anything about my situation and that he's not taking care of me? Why do you say that? If I know all the stars by name and I keep them in the sky and I keep them moving across the heavens and you would say that I don't know what's going on with you? No, I do. I do. So when we become tired and worn out and when we are disillusioned and uncertain and when we have run out of faith and there is just absolutely nothing left in the bucket, we typically feel like God is ignoring us, like he doesn't know about us. He's not hearing us. And here he says in verse 28, the everlasting God, the creator of the universe, the one who never tires, the one who has, whose understanding is beyond our comprehension, that God gives strength, gives power. Verse 31, new strength that is unending, not from themselves, but from God. And so this chapter 
has as wonderful as it is, and as many places you say, I love that verse, I really believe that the, the pinnacle of this chapter is in verse 9. Is in verse 9. Because here he has, throughout this chapter and at this place, he's like going, this is who I am. And then finally it's almost like, here is your God. Here is your God, this God, this one we've just talked about, this one we're going to talk about, everything I'm about to say to him, this is your God. This is your God. But then the key, the key to that God happens in verse 31. Those who, and I think the key is that word right there, wait. Those who wait. This is our God. Everything we just talked about, his magnificence, his his sovereignty, his all-knowing, his omniscience, all of those things about them. Here is your God. This is him. And then it says, those who wait on him. That word in the Hebrew has this essence, this this nature of hoping, of, of looking eagerly, of trusting It has all that kind of built into that word. And so he goes, so those who hope in him, those who trust on him, those who wait for him to act, for him to move on their behalf, those people, the Lord will gain. The Lord will give new strength. The Lord will give new strength. If he is good, let me just say, if only half of this chapter were true, he'd be worth waiting on. But he is good. He is faithful. He is tender. He is compassionate. He is all-knowing. And if he is all that, then we should wait. Look to him eagerly for him to step into our weaknesses and to give us that strength to help us mount up, to help us run without being tired, to walk without being weary. All of that is what he does. See, this is another thing about our God that is unique. This is another thing about our God that no one else can say, is that in our weakness, our God comes in and he does the work himself for us. He comes in and he doesn't make other ways. He is that strength. He is the one who gives us the ability to mount up. He does that work for us. It is true. To whom would we liken him? There is no other God like that. There is no one else like that. And what's interesting is that we don't find him to be like that until we've come to him and say we need him like that. And there's some of us in this room today who need him like that. So I don't say it, but he says, wait. Wait on him to meet you there. Let's pray.